namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sanghang namasami Once again, apologies for the slightly late starting, technical uh, difficulties. This is the, the nature of the world, but uh, very glad that uh, we're up and running. And greetings to everybody here at Amravati and also around the country, uh, around the world, uh, tuning in for this um, third of the Sunday afternoon talks for this Rains Retreat here at Amravati. And the, the theme for today is Dreaming Ourselves into Existence. Uh, again, there seems uh, to be quite a bit of range uh, in that topic, and uh, I'll explore a few of these themes, particularly around the uh, uh, the principles of self and not self, atta and anatta, and uh, the Buddha's teachings on that and how we can relate to those principles. Also, uh, the uh, the nature of delusion, dreaming, and uh, uh, how that. Uh, <coughs> Uh, say that that process can be obstructive and uh, and beneficial as well. So I thought I'd start off reading a um, uh, there's a bit of a change. Uh, the epigraph that we chose from this uh, for this book, uh, Broadview Boundless Heart, Lumpur Pasanna, whose birthday it is today. He's 71 years old today. And uh, when he and I put this book together, uh, I suggested we have this epigraph from the Greek poet. Pindar, and I felt this would be suitable to uh, to read as, uh, as a, a way of leading into the, the theme for today. Creatures of a day, what is anyone? What are they not? We are but a dream of a shadow. Yet, when there comes, as a gift of heaven, a gleam of sunshine, there rests upon the heart a radiant light, and I, a gentle life. So in this um, theme, dreaming ourselves into existence, then uh, uh, the obvious place to begin is what we feel ourselves to be. So most, uh, mostly we assume I'm a human being, I'm a woman, I'm a man, uh, I have a name, this is my story, this is my age. Uh, essentially, I am the body. I am the personality. This is this is who and what I am. This is where we begin with a conventional reality in life. When you you apply for a, a passport, you, you give your <laughs> your your name, your your birth date, and uh, so on and so forth. That's kind of who we are in terms of uh, law and convention and you know, perceptions in the human family. That's generally what we are, but as, as Pindar was observing, you know, what is anyone? You know, what, really, when, when we look inside, what, what are we? Uh, because uh, uh, over the, this, the years, the centuries, the millennia, human beings have explored and examined this kind of, uh, this question. And so beyond the surface of our name, our age, our nationality, our, our family, uh, there's something bigger inside, there's something more that, that we are, uh, there's some quality that's, that's here. What is that? What, what, are, what are we really beyond the, uh, uh, the world of appearances? Uh, 
what what's real and uh the um uh, i would say that that um set of perceptions that uh, pindar uh, refers to we are but a dream of a shadow i think he's alluding to that that uh, insubstantial quality of the appearances being a woman being a man being a you know, 63 years old or 71 years old or 5 years old more uh, having a, a nationality and a, and a religion and, and so on and so forth. Well, the Buddha's uh, second teaching, the second sutta, the Anathalakana Sutta, speaks directly to this area, and uh, this is a, a theme very frequently used in, in Dhamma teachings and contains uh, some of the most uh, say, potent insights. When the Buddha gave this teaching, this was the cause for his first five disciples, his five companions, to be fully enlightened. That was hearing this Dhamma talk about 20 minutes or so, uh, then all five of his, uh, of his friends, his companions, realized complete and full enlightenment. So it's a powerful teaching in, in many, many respects. And in this, uh, this teaching, the Anathalakana Sutta, the, the Buddha goes through uh, the categories of body and mind, uh, the world of material form, rupa, Rupakanda, the uh, the uh, the say the the aspect of the body, and then what are called the, the namakandas, the four mental aspects: uh, feeling or sensation, vedana, sanya, perception, sankhara, mental formations, emotions, moods, thoughts, ideas, memories, imagination, and then uh, uh, lastly, vijnana, consciousness or discriminative consciousness, the capacity of the mind to. Uh, say, to distinguish one thing from uh, another, the very sort of act of cognizing and discriminating, that uh, uh, he divides the, the, the world of mind and body conveniently up into these five categories, then he goes through them one by one, and it, by, a, by a kind of dialectical method, so a method of inquiry and dialogue, then he, he asks the, the friends, the companions, these questions, and uh, he uh, starts off with the world of material form, the body, saying, you know, is it uh, appropriate of the body to say that it is permanent or impermanent? Rupa, does it change or does it not change? And they'll say, it changes. Uh, it's impermanent, anichang bante. And then uh, he says, that which is changing, uh, can it be permanently satisfying? Is it subject to affliction? And then they say, yeah, if, if it's in a state of change, then it is uh, dukkang bante, it's dukkha, it's, it can't be permanently and completely satisfying. And then the, the, so the, the logical conclusion is, so is it appropriate to say of something which is uh, unstable and, uh, and cannot satisfy, this is, uh, this is mine, this is what I am, this is myself. E tang mama, e so hamasmi, e so me ata. To which they reply, yeah, no he tang bante. No, it's, it's not appropriate to say that. You can't say that. Because the, the principal being and, and what the sort of Vedic philosophy or the understanding would, uh, was at that time, and the ground of the, the dialogue is that if there is a true self, if there was a, a, a true, uh, say, quality of, of being, a, a true atta, then it would be uh, permanently uh, blissful and it would be something that is truly who who and what we are it would be it would be nicha sukha and atta or in in the uh, in the uh, sanskrit original as i understand sat chit ananda being consciousness bliss would be the characteristics of the atman so the, the buddha is walking them through that uh, and in that analysis 
then I, what I'd like to talk about today, and I, I bring up frequently, is these kind of three categories of, of selfing that the Buddha uh, sort of talks about or uses in this. Etang uh, mama, this uh, the quality of, of uh, mama or my uh, that feeling of mineness, a sense of owning. You can call that the owning self, the sense of uh, I, the owner. I own this body. Uh, I I uh, uh, yeah, own this book. These are my glasses. Uh, this is my life. That sense of, of this is mine. I am the owner. So the own that feeling of self around the quality of owning or the convention of owning. Then the second one, uh, asmi, uh, is that sense of being. I am. I am a person. I am Ajahn Amaro. I am a human being. I am a Buddhist monk. That uh, what you can call the the being self, or the the, the the quality of selfing around that sense of uh, of of being of being. I, I'm the one who hears. I'm the one who feels. This is this is me who's who's doing. It's me who's acting. It's me who's thinking. So the, the being self. And then the last one, it can be interpreted or worked with in different ways. It's uh, related to ditti or views, uh, the eso me ata, this is myself. Uh, and so that uh, I, I, in reflecting on this, uh, I, I like to consider this as the what we could call the narrative self. Say, I am Ajahn Amra, that's my name. I was born 63 years ago. I'm British. Uh, I have a British passport, an American passport. I have dual nationality, I'm a Buddhist monk. Um, so what we can think of as our story, or the, the narrative uh, of our, our life, who our parents are, where we, where we were born, where we went to school, the things that have happened in our, our lives, the pleasant, the painful, the neutral. So you can call that the narrative self. And I know there's many, many different ways you can slice up the pie uh, and to kind of arrange these things. Uh, but uh, I feel it's convenient to, to divide this uh, selfing habit into these three particular chunks. And they're, they're, these are also called the papancha dhammas, the, the causes of proliferation, or the causes of complication. Papancha means conceptual proliferation, or the, the complicating tendency of, of the mind. So tanha, mana, and ditti, craving, uh, conceit, uh, and views. Uh, uh, these are called the uh, the, the ways that the mind complicates things, that the, the feeling of self and I and me and mine attaches so easily around these and gets launched and, and we, we dream ourselves into existence. We conjure up this me who is this person. And then that, <clears throat> the, the degree to which the mind takes those selves, so that, those selfing habits to be substantial, to be real, to be absolutely who and what we are, is the degree to which dukkha is created. There's, there's necessarily uh, a quality uh, of tension and a, uh, an alienation that is uh, being generated in that. Because as Lung Cha would say, you look, uh, if you look for security in that which is unstable, you're bound to suffer. If you're looking uh, for, for permanence in that which is impermanent, you're bound to suffer. If you're looking for satisfaction in that which can't satisfy, you, you have to suffer. So the, the degree to which the mind uh, doesn't realize that it's dreaming, it doesn't realize that these are, are superficial perceptions and takes them to be absolute realities, that's the degree to which it creates uh, dukkha. And so we, we find ourselves you know, in that sense of I am suffering, you know, I experience suffering. Uh, other words that are related to this area 
very very closely are are um, the I making and mine making habits of mind. Ahankara, mamankara. Ahang means I am, uh, and mama, as I mentioned before, means means mine. It's uh, that feeling of owning. So I making and mine making, and, and again, this is how the the mind conjures up. And in the word uh, ahankara, the uh, in a way, the important part is the kara. That means to make or to do, to fabricate. And so is, there's a forming. There's the uh, the uh, the I making. It's that I-ness is made. It's constructed. It's not intrinsically there. It's not inherently uh, there. It doesn't have any absolute substantiality. It's conjured into being. It's it's dreamed into being. It's formed and compounded into being. Similarly, that, that feeling of mama, uh, that sense of mine. So, so I, I'm not sure whether there's any real etymological uh, connection, but I think the, the primordial noise of a baby calling for the mama, 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 that sense of mindness that the child owns the mother, that's uh, the source of, of warmth and comfort, safety, nourishment, mama, 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 <laughs> and how that uh, uh, represents mindness, that sense of, of, uh, of owning in, in such a, pr- a primal, basic instinctual way whether that has any real basis in the language i don't know but it, it often comes to mind that there's a there's a connection there's a relationship between owning and the babies all around the planet that have that same kind of m- 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 uh, uh, sound that they make and uh, that's why we use the, the word ma or mother or mama for for the mother in many many languages many cultures and countries uh, around the world Another word that's interesting to or useful to reflect upon in this respect is manyati, coming from mana, conceit. Manyati means to conceive. And so that uh, in, in Western language, having a concept, uh, uh, having a, a conception of something is quite neutral or quite beneficial. You, know, you have an idea about something. Um, but it's interesting in the, the uh, in the Pali use of the word manyati, it's not just around, uh, or it's, it's more around the, the, the creation of the feeling of self, of I and me and mine, than it is around uh, creating a, a concept or an idea or a thought. And and uh, in one particular teaching, it's the the Datu Vibhanga Sutta, the ex, exposition of the elements in the middle-length discourses, Sutta, 140, I think, if I remember correctly. When the Buddha is talking about manyati, about, about conceiving, and he says, conceiving manyati, says, I am, the I am thought, uh, asmi, uh, uh, you know, ahang asmi, I am, uh, that, that is a, uh, is a conceiving. It's a, uh, it's a, uh, uh, something that's brought into being. And then he goes on to say, conceiving is like a cancerous tumor. It's like a, a, a poisoned arrow. It's an affliction. It's, it's burdensome. It's alien. It's something that, that's foreign. So he speaks in quite sort of pointed and, uh, kind of intense language that just that, that feeling of I am, <laughs> that's, that's like you know, being diagnosed with cancer or being, uh, uh, stuck in a, in a foreign country without the language is something that is is um, sort of painful, afflictive, and, and difficult, which doesn't seem to apparent to us in our ordinary everyday lives to just to think that the term "well, I am, I'm a, yeah, I'm a man, I'm a woman, I, yeah, I am, I am living in Amravati," uh, uh, that uh, seems absolutely neutral. But uh, the language that the Buddha uses there, that uh, I am as a conceiving, conceiving is a tumor, conceiving is a, a poisoned arrow, it's alien, it's afflicted, it's unstable, it's, 
pay attention, <laughs> this is dangerous. And so that uh, in this process or the way that we, we dream ourselves into existence, we've got, the Buddha's pointing to the danger of being lost in the dream, you know, lost in the, the projections or the, the fabrications uh, of self. And that, that sense, uh, and the, 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 the encouragement of the Buddha, and also, as we were saying last week, the very word Buddha uh, itself means wake up. The, uh, the, the quality of buddhi means uh, awake, uh, awakened awareness. And so it's talking about coming out of the dream, waking up from the, the dream, waking up to the, the say, the, the dangerous and uh, afflictive, uh, challenging nature of that, that kind of belief, taking that I am feeling to be absolutely substantial and real uh, and who and what we are. Long before I came in contact with, with Buddhism, uh, when I was a teenager, I spent quite a bit of time, quite a bit of time trying to figure all these things out. And, um, uh, I was reflecting on the, the, the theme for the, for the talk. And I, I had this memory of, uh, I lived in a, in, on a farm in Kent in, in southeast England. And, uh, around, uh, around the farm, I had a lot of, of the sort of practical, you know, uh, heavy lifting jobs for the family. And um, one of the, the jobs that was my regular task was mowing the uh, mowing the grass, mowing the, the lawn in the in the summertime. And uh, it was a pretty <laughs> pretty rough uh, area. There wasn't a sort of smooth, even flat lawn. It was a bit sort of lumpy and rugged. And I remember uh, one particular day. I don't know why it sort of came to mind, but uh, uh, I was started on mowing the lawn, and I got this idea: I, I will figure out what the self is by the time I get to the end of the of the mowing. And I would do it in a spiral. So I was kind of going around and around and the spiral getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And as I was pushing the lawn though and kind of negotiating the, <laughs> the, the lumps in the, in the lawn and going along, trying to figure out the, the nature of identity. And it was a, a kind of thing you do as a 16 year old, I guess, but, uh, uh, that sense of, of trying to puzzle out, well, what, what is the real me? What's the, uh, what, what is this, this quality of being? How does it work? And, you know, what is this? And um, I, I freely, freely admit by the time I got to the last patch of grass right at the middle of the lawn, I hadn't, <laughs> hadn't come to any kind of reliable conclusion. But it was uh, a very, um, uh, it was kind of a, a memorable time, that in sense of when you look and you, uh, you explore what's, what's going on inside, there's certainly an impression that's, that we are bigger on the inside than we are on the outside, that there's, there's more going on within us or there's more dimensions to, to what we are than is apparent at the surface. But what that is and how it works and what's going on is, is, was mysterious and, uh, un, uh, unfathomable. I couldn't figure it out. But during those years, I, I did note one of the reasons I was I was looking at this, I was trying to figure it out, was because uh, I seemed to move in a, in a number of different worlds. And then, so when I was a teenager, and then leaving school and going off to to university, um, and I I found myself being in these different dimensions. So with my family down in the countryside, I was you know I was the son. I got two sisters, my mother and my father, and then. Uh, you know, their families, my various aunts and uncles and cousins, and you know that's who I am. I I am that that boy in the um, the youngest of the cousins in the family, and this is who I am. And these are my grandparents, and this is this is the family dynamic, and that's who I am. But then when I would 
leave the family and go off to school each day, then that, that was all left behind. And I was this particular person in the school. And I had my, my role in the school, what particular year I was in. And I was a pupil. I had my uniform and uh, the, the kind of school dynamics of the teachers and the other, and the other pupils and who you liked and who you didn't like and the, uh, the things you were studying and the sports you did. And that was that world. And so I, I noticed, well, I'm in the school. I completely forget the family. When I'm in the family, I completely forget the school. And then also, uh, we were very poor, but one thing that we, we did have was, was horses, ponies. And my grandparents used to underwrite a certain amount of our, <laughs> our kind of uh, fun activities as kids, uh, so that uh, a few things were paid for by my, my grandparents, my mother's parents. So we had ponies and horses, and so we would go off to, to horse shows and go to a, a, a riding camp, a, a, pony, a pony club camp every summer. And, that, and I noticed when I was in the horse riding community and joining in with various competitions, show jumping or cross-country jumping or, or these um, different contests that we had, that I was completely a part of that world. And if I was going along to the point-to-point, the, -point, the races and hanging out in the beer tent, chatting with all the other people in their green Wellingtons and their tweed jackets and their glasses of gin and tonic and such like, so I was completely part of that world. And the school and the family were also kind of forgotten and in the background. And then uh, when I was uh, at uh, college off in, off in London, then I was a sort of college student and I had the, the, the psychology department, physiology department and the people there and the, the folks I hung out with. And I was completely part of that. And so it was really puzzling to me. So which is, which one is, <laughs> which one is my true self? Yeah, am I the, the, is it really, uh, I'm a, the family member and the rest is all, t the rest is all tacked on around the edges or, uh, uh, am I really the student or the, the, uh, the kind of academic inquirer and then the family and the, the horse riding world and the, uh, the kind of uh, school companions, public school, uh, uh, crowd that I grew up with going around, uh, getting drunk and partying and racing through the country lanes of the, uh, the, um, uh, of Kenton and, uh, causing all sorts of trouble for ourselves and others. Which one's the real me? You know, which one is the, the, the true self? And because I noticed in each realm, you'd, you'd mesh together with other people and you carry, and you take on their value system. And some of them are extremely sort of right wing and conservative and, you know, always, uh, always wore the uh, kind of a conservative old fashioned clothing and others were sort of hippie anarchists <laughs> flouting every rule possible. Uh, and, uh, all sorts of different conventions, but somehow I felt at home in each one of these worlds, and I, and uh, and I didn't feel like I was being hypocritical, but uh, there was a sense of I can you know, hopping from one dimension to another. But what's what's the real me? What's what's really important? What's what's my real value system in the middle of all of this? And and again, I couldn't. <laughs> I thought about this, and it was really really strange to to uh, consider. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I still couldn't figure out the, the, a sense of, well, what's the real person? What's, what's the genuine me that's a, at the middle of all of this? And probably all of us here, you know, here we are, um, uh, Buddhist monastics, nuns, monks, novices, anagarikas, anagarikas, uh, lay people, even pro probably a number of the lay people think, oh, she's wasting her time. What's she doing in that place again? You know, how many years is she going to be there? Well, how, you know, how can you waste your life? He's got a degree. He's got a PhD. What's he doing in that place? Wasting his life. Or like, oh yeah, that's really great. Why should, I wish I could do that. <laughs> the way that people perceive us or project upon us. 
they're embarrassed about us, they're proud of us, they're confused about us. Different people see us in different ways. So what are we? What, what, you know, what can kind of, what conclusion do we come to? So, uh, in this, uh, this reflections on anatta and the way that we conceive uh, ourselves and, and the way that the Buddha talked about self-conception, that, uh, uh, manyati, conceiving the I, the I am. And he talks about that a lot in the teachings, various different places. Sometimes in quite an analytical way, like the, uh, Anatalakana Sutta, the discourse on not self. Other times really quite, quite pointed and again pretty pretty blunt in his uh, in his uh, kind of uh, uh, delivery and the way he's making a, a, a making his uh, perception felt there's a particular suit a called the dung beetle uh, and he's talking about uh, a, a a monastic or a, a summoner or a brahmin like a spiritual teacher who is so proud of their position. It's a, someone who is a, a samana or a brahmin who's proud of how many disciples they've got or how proud of how tall their temple is or their, how much, how much money they, their, their temple gets, gets given. Yeah. And that, uh, the sense of, I'm really somebody. I've got, you know, thousands of disciples. I've got, you know, 20 monasteries. I've got, you know, my stupa is twice the high, twice the height of the, you know, the stupa next door, the kind of stupa competition. You know, my, and uh, trying to to sort of uh, compare yourself or, or feeling inflated about your uh, your achievements, and the Buddha, in a very pointed way, says, "This is like a dung beetle in the forest that gathers a big ball of dung and says, "My ball of dung is bigger than anybody else's ball of dung. I got the best ball of dung. My ball of dung is really the biggest." So comparing a, a fellow spiritual teacher to a dung beetle, or even his own disciples, you know, that some of his disciples might have been quite pleased with their own knowledge or their own, uh, say, being praised by, uh, by the, the public or being given lots of uh, offerings, that uh, it might well have been as much a teaching to the Buddha's own disciples as it was talking about other spiritual uh, figures around and about, but it's, it's pretty blunt. <laughs> To, to say this is like a dung beetle saying, you know, look at the size of my dung ball. This is, you know, this is so precious, so so valuable. My dung ball is bigger than anybody else's. But it puts that into perspective how the ego can get inflated around things that you know the, the the society values. Like if you're an academic, you know how many papers you got published, even though there's only like a, a hundred people around the planet who can actually understand what you've written. <laughs> You still, you know, you've got 150 papers that you've published in the last 10 years, you know, that, uh, or you've, you've won particular prizes, you know, that you've got a Nobel Prize or a Fields Medal, or you've, uh, you know, you've got elected to high office, you know, you're a government minister or, you know, you're the head of a department, uh, the, uh, the book sales for your latest novel are, you know, are off the charts and, and the things that within, in, in worldly perceptions, people can get very pleased with, you know, how many titles you've got. Uh, you know, you need to get a, a reprint of your business card because, oh God, they gave me another title. Oh dear, I have to get my cards reprinted again. <sighs> what a bore. Yeah. <laughs> and feeling uh, pleased with that. So the Buddha's pointing to, like, look at how ridiculous it is. Like a, like the dung beetle being proud of the size of its dung ball. It's like, how many Nobel Prizes have you got? Or how many titles you've been given? Oh, the, uh, the um, the kind of uh, ancestry you have your your uh, hereditary as a as a, a noble you say well actually I, I am related to the archduke of Romania you know 
third time removed and a few marriages away, you know, that, or that, oh my, yeah, my, my great, 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 great grandmother was on the Mayflower going to the, uh, the colonies back in the, in the, uh, 17th century. You know, we, we claim an identity, um, and make something of it. We literally make something of it. <laughs> and, uh, and then by being born into that, by dreaming those things into existence and believing in the dreams, then, this is directly a, a cause for dukkha when somebody insults insults you or challenges your ancestry or, or or criticizes the paper you published or complains about the the way that you brought up your children or how you wear your robes or or, or floats in from a different Buddhist tradition and say, well, of course, you know, all Theravadans are basically deluded Hinayanists and. Uh, you know, they kind of mistakenly think of themselves as authentic, but actually they're, they're far, you know, far more adrift from the, the base, the essential spirit of the Buddha Dhamma than, you know, some kind of, uh, the, the most, uh, sort of, uh, uh, uneducated child born in the northern Buddhist world who's been introduced to the Mahayana teachings and has right view. Because, you know, your, your whole tradition is essentially valueless, really. I mean, you know that. What do you mean? Yeah. We're the Theravadans. We're the true. We're the original. We're, we're the real thing. It's, it's you who are false. So when somebody pr- criticizes our ball of dung, then we can get upset. So you haven't got the biggest ball of dung. Actually, your ball of dung is, is uh, not really that impressive at all. And then besides, the kind of dung you've used is really, it's not the best. It's not the best. And so we get, we, we get upset. We get, uh, we get wounded. Our pride gets, gets punctured. So then, uh, in co- considering all of this, then you know, <laughs> what what's the what, what to do? What's a good way forward? So the uh, essentially the the there there's quite a number of practices that are there in the teachings, and that uh, within the forest tradition, um, we have a, a a lot of focus on this, uh, say exploring those feelings of self, and uh, particularly the development of vipassana meditation. And um, the, uh, the development of insight is around seeing into that false or, or deceptive nature of, of the different kinds of selves that the mind believes in. And uh, particularly in this respect, seeing the, the empty nature of the five khandhas, seeing how that the things that the mind is attaching to and giving substance to the body, feelings, perceptions, mental formations, consciousness—that really, in essence, they are—they're empty. They're, they're void of substance. They're—they're they're hollow. They're—they are um, deceptive. And in a particular teaching, there's uh, a couple of teachings immediately come to mind. One is called um, the the lump of foam, uh, and another is the, the teaching of the Buddha to a, a young Brahmin student called Mogaraja. So the lump of foam sutta is the, the Buddha was. Um, I think beside the uh, the river uh, Yamuna, I think it was at Ayodhya, and there was a, there was with a group of, uh, of monks, and they were wandering through the countryside, and there was a, a large lump of foam floating on the surface of the river, and uh, the the Buddha pointed to that, and you see that that lump of foam. Uh, so the rupa, the material form, is just like that that lump of foam. It has some, it has a has a shape. But when you, you look at it, you explore it, there, there's no substance, there, there's no core there. And then he goes on to expand, uh, so Vedana, feeling, sensation. So this is, uh, yeah, the, the Vedana, yeah, it also is similarly, uh, 
insubstantially, it's hollow, it's it's empty. Uh, that um, the uh, uh, the if you look and explore, then and he goes through the whole of the, of the five khandas, saying that they're like a a, um, a mirage in the desert. You know, there's a shape, there's a color, there's a form that uh, you you can see the. Um, the, the the kind of there's something apparently there, but uh, it when you go to touch it, you go to reach it, it you can't uh, uh, you can't find anything solid. So when he goes to to Vedana, he says, you know, when the when rain falls onto a pond in the rainy season, and a big raindrop hits the 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 surface of the the water, then there's a bubble. It kind of forms into a sphere, uh, and but. That, uh, that water bubble, it's only there for a second, for a part of, you know, just a fraction, and then, and then it's gone. So he said, the Vedana feeling sensation is like a water bubble, you know, there's a shape, but no core, no essence. Sanya, he uses that image of a, of a mirage in the desert, walking through the desert, you see this pattern of, of, uh, say, colors and shapes in the air, but, uh, uh when you get there, there, there wasn't any building, there wasn't any trees, they aren't there, it was just a, an appearance, a pattern of light in the air that in that place had no substance, no, no solidity. Sankara he compares to a, um, uh, a, a, a um, banana plant, a, a plantain, which like a leek or an onion, it just has layers and layers and layers of leaves and there's no heartwood, there's no core. He said just like a plantain, a banana plant, you peel away the sheaves of leaves and there's no core, there's no heartwood, there's no center. So, Sankara is like this, or our emotions, our memories, our ideas, our concepts, uh, our, our thoughts, just like a, a, a banana plant, you kind of peel away the layers and then there's no thing, no core, no heartwood at the center. And then the last one, uh, Vinyana, consciousness, he says, it's like a conjurer performing a trick. When you see a, a, a conjurer, a magician doing a trick, it seems like there really was you know, a rabbit coming out of the hat or that somebody, the, the magician's assist, assistant was standing there and they, they throw a cloth over them and then the cloth falls to the ground and the assistant has disappeared, has vanished. And it, it seems like real magic was done, but actually it was a trick. It was just an appearance. It was just a seeming. So that, um, that, uh, say, uh, uh, changing our way of vision or bringing attention to the five khandas and then challenging that. So using wise reflection to, to, to challenge that appearance of solidity. And so one, when, uh, the Buddha says, when one looks and when one carefully considers, when there's that yoni so manasikara, what's going on here? Or is this solid? Or yeah, that, that looks like a real thing, but is it? So that's the, the transformative agent there. Similarly, in his dialogue with Mogaraja, which is, um, there's a series of, of teachings in the last, in the, the Sutanipata, the, the, uh, the Buddha has a, a collection of different Brahmin students who come to him and ask questions. And Mogaraja asks the question, what's the best way to evade the king of death? How, how can we avoid death? Is it possible to evade the, the king of death? Can that be done? And the, the Buddha said, well, if you see all things as empty, uh, as sunya, as void of substance, then Mogaraja, the king of death, will not be able to find you. And this is the way to escape the, the king of death, to evade, evade, evade death's king, to see everything as empty, to know everything uh, as empty. That uh, that thingness, that solidity, is a seeming, it, it's uh, apparent, it's not the uh, the absolute reality. So uh, the, these uh, approaches to getting out of the dream <laughs> is 
is essentially changing the the mode of vision, not just going along with conditioned perceptions, but that's that uh, essentially that capacity of the of the mind, the heart, to go. Wait a minute. Now that's what I'm being told. That's what that's what everyone calls it. Or yes, this group of people value this particular thing. How many people are watching this live stream? Are the numbers increasing or decreasing? How are we doing? <laughs> How many followers have we got? <laughs> They, that they well, that's just a, an invented value system. It doesn't have any substance. There isn't anything really there. It's just people agree to give this value, so it has value. That's that's where it's it's kind of uh, it's uh, deceiving. That's the deceptive quality of it. We impute value and meaning to uh, how many years we've been in the robes, or how many books we've got published, or how many people come to our, our monastery, or uh, so on and so forth. The uh, that value is imputed, uh, and it, uh, and the mind that can say, "Well, wait a minute, hang on a second, why is that valuable? Is that really so? Is that the whole story?" Then that, um, in essence, that that is the the way that the the vision is changed. In that moment, the uh, the innate uh, wisdom faculty of the heart is being engaged. And that capacity to explore and to to consider is is being used as wise reflection is being employed, and then that wisdom faculty says, "Oh, of course, how could it be anything solid or substantial uh, that 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 couldn't be the case? This is just a human agreement, a nationality uh, you know the, I like to point out the fact that you know right, right now the United Kingdom consists of of uh, England uh, Wales, Scotland, and Northern Ireland. That's the United Kingdom. The Cornish consider, some of the Cornish consider themselves a separate nation as part of the, the, the Union. Other people, uh, will say, you know, the, the Cornish people are out of their minds. They're not a separate nation at all. Some people can make a case for that. Yeah, uh, 2000 years ago, this wasn't England. England didn't exist as a concept. Yeah, we were, uh, in the, um, this was part of the kingdom of, of Essex. This is uh, uh, the the uh, what we now call England was made up of about seven different countries at that time. If you go back three or four thousand years, then even Essex didn't exist. You know the the you know, tribal lands controlled by particular uh, families or groups or clans. What's a border? What's a country? What's a nationality? It's conjured into being. It's it's dreamed into existence, and then we we. Uh, get lost in the dream. So, when we wake up, then we realize a border can only be a convenient fiction, a name, an identity, uh, uh, a, 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 an achievement can only be a, a, a convenient fiction. So, uh, it's also uh, in, to, in terms of uh, dreaming ourselves into existence, um, we can also dream ourselves out of existence, or we can dream ourselves into realization. And so this is uh, one of the areas in, in the, uh, uh, that's useful to consider and that uh, I w also want to, to share is that it's talking as I have been today, it can sound like all kinds of conventions and forms are sort of deceptive, obstructive, difficult, problematic, but that's not the case because um, we have the Buddha's teachings and so those are also conventions, forms, structures, words, concepts. They are dreams also and I remember uh, years ago, uh, when uh, Kitty Sara, who's a very uh, eminent lay teacher nowadays, but uh, he was a eminent monk teacher back in the day, and when when we were uh, spending time together in um, 
uh, I think it was we, we spent a winter retreat together in, in uh, I think 1991 down at Chithurst. And I remember he used this, this phrase about the, the Buddha. He said the, he, uh, he, uh, called the Buddha the supreme creator of dreams to wake up the dreamers. Uh, that was stuck in my mind. That was a, a beautiful way of describing it, that the Buddha was a, a weaver of dreams. He created dreams to wake up the dreamers. So thank you, Kirisaro, <laughs> coming up with that. Because that's, that's what the teaching is. And it's also called the, the miracle of instruction. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was quoting this from the, the Kevada Sutta, when the Buddha talks about different kinds of miracles. So there's a miracle of like psychic power, reading people's minds, flying through the air, looking into past lives, and so on and so forth. So that's one kind of miracle. The other kind of miracle is the miracle of instruction. That you, know, you can say some words, and if people are paying attention in a, an appropriate way, then the, the words that they hear can bring about a transformation of the heart, and the heart can be completely liberated. That's amazing. Like the five disciples, the five companions listening to the Anathalakana Sutta. It only takes about 20 minutes to recite. So they sit down together. There they are in the deer park in Varanasi. The, the Buddha and, and his five companions, this bunch of, uh, of uh, yogis kind of living in the forest. And you have the, the Buddha, the, the fully awakened Buddha, just uh, newly uh, so come from Bodhgaya and his... Uh, full and complete enlightenment, talking to his, his uh, ragged uh, monastic companions there in the deer park, he says the words of the, the Anathalakana Sutta, and all five of them become arahants right there. That's a, a miracle, just from hearing the words that the Buddha was saying. And obviously they had the spiritual potential, the paramitas that were uh, ready to, to ripen. But still, that's, that's uh, amazing, that's a, a miraculous thing. So just by putting words together and conveying them in a, in a certain form and fashion, and the, there being the receptivity uh, and the reflective capacity in the listeners, then uh, that, that transformation, that waking up can happen. So the Buddha said, of these two types of miracle, the miracle of psychic power and the miracle of instruction, so the miracle of instruction is the superior. Flying through the air or reading people's minds is kind of, you know, well, so what really? <laughs> it doesn't really matter that much. It doesn't really help anybody. But actually uh, being able to uh, enable or catalyze the liberation of the heart in another, that's amazing. That, that's wonderful. That's, that's truly glorious. So that process of, of teaching and uh, it's really using con the conditioned world, using the conditions to enable the heart, the mind, to awaken to the unconditioned. You're not creating the unconditioned. That, that fundamental reality is, is already present. That's the, the Dhamma itself. But it's a, you're using conditions to enable the unconditioned to be realized. And that's uh, a, a, a wonderful and marvelous thing. So the, the it's believing in the conditioned realm and taking it to be solid that causes the, the problems, but where we know that the, the conditioned world and the conventions of language and thought, we know that they're conventions and structures and forms, but they still have an effect. And that effect can, it can be if they're applied in a skillful way to help the, the heart to free itself from uh, all obstructions, all, all burdens, all, all delusion, all defilement. Another uh, phrase that comes to mind from a book is a, a somewhat strange book called, um, I think it's called Tales of a Dalai Lama. It was written by a man called Pierre de Latre. 
Uh, I'm not sure whether he was French or French Canadian or where, where he came from. It's a, it's a slightly unusual book. It's not, it's not really about the Dalai Lama as we know him, <laughs> the you know, Tenzin Gyatso, the Dalai Lama, but it's a, a, a kind of an imaginary Dalai Lama in the, the mind of this particular author. But there's some interesting comments and observations and images that come into it. And there's this particular exchange in the book that, uh, that really struck me. And uh, he's talking about uh, about teaching and about um, illusions, and uh, he uh, in the in the narrative of the book it says, Magici the magicians and the storytellers open us up to wonder with their tricks. We are lured into the eternal reality through well-timed illusion, for illusions appear as enticing emanations from around that oval into which all faces vanish when the ego surrenders to the mystifying self with a big. Yes. So that really struck me. <laughs> the uh, magicians and the storytellers open us up to wonder with their tricks. We are lured into the eternal reality through well-timed illusion. I said, "Yeah, that's exactly how it works." So hearing a dhamma talk is like a is if it's a a kind of good talk, <laughs> if it's a, effective, it's a well-timed illusion. It's just a construction we gather together here in the sala at Amravati. Uh, somebody dressed in robes sits up on a chair and talks into a microphone and a camera. Hopefully that broadcasts itself uh, around the world. And that uh, we are, we, if, if the chemistry works, then we are opened up to wonder by that trick. Uh, we are lured into the eternal reality through well-timed illusion. And that last part, for illusions appear as enticing emanations from around that oval into which all faces vanish when the ego surrenders to the mystifying self. Again, uh, the Venerable Tenzin Gyatso would not use that kind of language exactly. <laughs> I think the words are put into his mouth in the, the book. I haven't looked at it for a long time. I just had memorized the passage. But uh, if you notice, um, sometimes when you're particularly in a half light and the mind is very uh, you know, awake and inspired, then people's faces start to, to sort of blur and, and, uh, and the, the features uh, tend to dissolve a bit. Or if you look at your own face in a mirror in a half light, your own face can start to mutate and dissolve and, and uh, the, the selfing sort of breaks up and uh, is not so concrete, not so solid. And I feel that's probably what uh, the author was was uh, referring to when saying uh, that oval into which all faces vanish and the ego surrenders to the mystifying self. So that essentially, I would say that that means when there is a letting go of that illusion of uh, uh, that conceiving of, uh, of self, of uh, the... The owning self, the being self, the narrative self, and that lets go, and there's a blurring, there's a, 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 a dissolving of that, that illusion. It's also, um, uh, interesting to consider that the word person comes from the Latin persona. Per means through, sona is sound. So a persona is a mask that an actor speaks through. So being a person, <laughs> right there in the word, it's a mask. So this also reflects the fact that, uh, going back to the, which is the real me, or, or um, uh, taking on these different roles, that if we remember it's a mask, that we're not really a woman or a man, we're not really uh, 63 years old or 23 or 103, we're not really you know, Spanish or French or Italian or English or American, 
really that's a mask these on, these can only be masks they are personae then uh, in that uh, in that recognition there's a freeing of the heart and the um that uh, uh, that might be uh, liberating or delightful to hear, or it might be frustrating. <laughs> but, what, but Ajahn, what are we? <laughs> what, what, what is this? What, what's real? Uh, and the, again, I think as I was saying last week, how uh, when the uh, the Buddha talks about his own nature, uh, and it's one of those rare instances where you have the Buddha speaking about his own, literally his own subjective experience, when he's talking to Vachagota, uh, and he, again, he uses the framework of the five khandhas, the uh, body, uh, sensation, feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness. Uh, and he, he uh, uses that framework to talk to Vachagota. And he says, that material form, Vacha, whereby one trying to describe the Tathagata would describe him, that has been cut off at the root, made like a palm tree stump, deprived of the conditions for existence, and rendered incapable of arising in the future. The Tathagata is liberated from being reckoned in terms of material form, Vacha. He is profound, immeasurable, unfathomable, like the great ocean. And so too with Vedana, with feeling, with perception, mental formations, consciousness. That consciousness whereby someone trying to describe the Tathagata would describe him, that has been cut off at the root, made like a palm tree stump, deprived of the conditions for existence, and rendered incapable of arising in the future. The Tathagata is liberated from being reckoned, from being measured in terms of consciousness. He is profound, immeasurable, unfathomable, like the great ocean. So you get profound, immeasurable, unfathomable. It doesn't give you a lot to hang on to. <laughs> but then again, they say that, oh, well, that's what I am. I am profound, immeasurable, unfathomable. That's what I am. But that's just a thought. That's just the, the mind saying, I am that. And that as soon as there's that manyati, that conceiving, that eye-making and mind-making, right there is dukkha. That's the, the, the degree to which the mind believes in it, I am. So it's a, a, a relinquishing. And so in, and in this respect, the, um, uh, it's like that, the mind that recognizes that, uh, that what is real is not definable. Uh, is not nameable, it is most skillful. The, um, uh, another of the things about uh, dreaming I might mention is that uh, along with, say, being lost in a dream or being caught in a dream uh, can be obstructive, but just as comparing uh, teaching or, or words to being um, conventions and forms, sometimes uh, the dream world can actually be revelatory rather than confusing or, de or deceptive or delusory. And so sometimes in the dream world, um, in the, uh, not that I'm an expert on, on dreaming and such like, but in the Tibetan tradition they actually have a, what they call dream yoga, actually. They develop the dream world as a, a mode for, uh, for receiving instruction and for practicing Dhamma. That's, I think it's the only, of the only one of the Buddhist traditions that, that actually consciously has developed that. But it can be um, that sometimes in the dream world, in the world of dreams, things that insights that have not been able to surface uh, in the waking world because the managing director is so <laughs> so busy running things that uh, uh, the uh, the kind of thinking mind and the controlling egos uh, of various types are sort of getting in the way. It's only in the world of dream that sometimes insights 
um, uh, appear. And so probably for, for most of us here, once in a while, we've had a dream where there was some very, very helpful uh, uh, information or some kind of valuable valuable way of seeing things that that appeared in some kind of dream language or dream symbolism that wasn't able to take shape in the waking world. And that uh, certainly uh, for myself, that's happened a few times over the years. And when you wake up, you know, there's definitely a sense of, well, that was interesting, or hmm, well, that, that, that was a message. Uh, one, uh, uh, one particular one uh, many, many years ago, it was a very colorful and involved, um, very sort of vivid dream. Uh, I, I won't go into all the details of it. I'd have to look up my notebooks to, to check. But at the very end of it, uh, there's this long, complicated, very colorful, very coherent uh, series of events. I find myself out in this, this cabbage field. In, it was at nighttime, it was in this cabbage field, these long rows of cabbages. And then I knew there was a particular cabbage I had to go to. Who knows why? I didn't have a particularly close relationship with cabbages. Some kind of symbolic significance, or not. <laughs> anyway, I went to this particular cabbage, and this cabbage opened. Like it, it was like a a, a, um, a box, you know, and you could open the lid of the cabbage. And inside, it was hollow, and inside the the this empty cabbage, there was a piece of paper, and on the piece of paper was written the words, "Humans have had more than their fair share of this planet." So then I woke up. Right. <laughs> okay. Duly noted. Duly noted. It was a useful message for, uh, for yeah, to, to, to receive. I had that feeling anyway, but uh, that uh, we were overdoing it on the consumption side of things. But it was interesting that that sort of surfaced in the, in the dream world. Anyway, I won't uh, go into to more of that, but sometimes that... Uh, so again, just as not all concepts and constructions or conventions are obstructive, not all dreams are obstructive either. And uh, there's also the stories of the the night before the Buddha's full and complete enlightenment. He had he had five dreams that, again, were very clear and symbolic and uh, are recorded in the scriptures. These uh, uh, and it's it, mostly the Buddha didn't make much of the dream world. He didn't didn't uh, give it much um, uh, say value or significance. But he does mention these five symbolic dreams that he had before his enlightenment and that uh, say predicted the fact that he was about to to reach full and, and complete uh, liberation. And so that uh, that uh, was an encouragement to him, was a, a sense of validation. Okay, this is, uh, you're close to completion and these these dreams are are, uh, are reliable. They're giving you a um, uh, a lead. They, they, they're giving you uh, a, an encouragement. There's a, a, a way that they are representing that which is uh, is about to ripen. So then going back to the question of what are we? <laughs> and uh, again, maybe going, the, the thing to finish with will be going back to the, uh, um, the Sutanipata and the collection of young students who came to see the Buddha and asked their questions. So along with Mogaraja, there was another student called Upasiva. And the question Upasiva asked is very similar to, to Vachagota uh, about what happens to an enlightened being at the, at the end of their life. And Upasiva uh, asks this question. Um, so, someone who's enlightened, when they when they reach the end of their life, do they uh, and the body dies? Do they no longer exist? 
or are they or do they somehow enter into some kind of eternal blissful state are they are they liberated made eternally free in some kind of separate special dimension and uh, uh, this is one of the, my, my favorite passages from the whole uh, Pali Canon. What the Buddha says to Upasiva is, one who has reached the end has no criterion by which they can be measured. That which can be spoken of is no more. So the body, feelings, perceptions, and so on. The body is broken up. The life has come to an end. Yeah. So <clears throat> that which can be spoken of is no more. You cannot say that they do not exist. But when all modes of being, all phenomena have been removed, all means of speaking have gone too. One who has reached the end has no criterion by which they can be measured. That which can be spoken of is no more. You cannot say that they do not exist. And that's one rendering of the, the Pali, that there's various different renderings. But I think that's the most sort of comprehensive and I feel accurate one. You can't say that there, that there isn't anything. Um, but when all modes of being, all phenomena are removed, all means of speaking have gone too. So uh, normally we think of ourselves, I am this person, I am, this is my body. It's now 4.03 according to the clock here and about time to finish the talk. Um, this is Amravati. We're in Hertfordshire in, in England. It's, it's 2020, 26th of July in the year 2020. That's the time, the place, this is where we are, this is who I am. So if you let go of identity, that there isn't an Ajahn Amro, you let go of time, that there, time is a convention created by perception. If you let go of location, there isn't really a Hertfordshire, there isn't really an Amravati, there is no place. Place doesn't really apply. You let go of identity, you let go of time, you let go of location, what are we? Where are we? The, the, the language has got nothing to, to fix onto. There's no hooks to, to put anything on according to our ordinary way of speaking. Time, place, identity. And so without time, place, identity and that applying, when all modes of being, all phenomena are removed, all means of speaking have gone too. Because the language that we use comes from time, place, uh, identity, Etc. Uh, Etc. Et past and future, present, uh, and so when none of that applies, <laughs> it's like we're so sort of down in the quantum realm. Your past and future don't apply. Location doesn't apply. Uh, identity doesn't apply, and so that uh, that is threatening to the ego, but really liberating to the heart. So I say in this theme of dreaming ourselves into existence then this is, say, we're using the dreams or the concepts to, to dream ourselves out of existence. To, to, in a sense, the practice is, is using the, the concepts, the structures, the forms to, to end uh, the, uh, that false sense of alienation. To exist, again, going to another etymology from the Latin, <laughs> so exi stents. Exi means out. Stents comes from to stand, so that which stands out, that which exists, stands out from the reality. It's the the explicate uh, order. It's like that that's which is apparent. The the world of appearances, the uh, the Dhamma is what things are. Things stand out from. They exist. They stand out from. So sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, thought stands out from the basis of of Dhamma. That is what the uh, 
David Bohm called the implicate order, I would say. That, that, um, so the practice of Dhamma is letting go of the, the world of appearances to, to be, uh, to awaken to the reality of Dhamma that is the, the foundation of, of all things. You can't describe that. You can't, uh, sort of, uh, say, use language really to say much about it. The, when we talk about the qualities of Dhamma, we say, Sanditiko, uh, apparent here and now. Akaliko, timeless. <laughs> Ehipasiko, leading inward. Opanaiko. Sorry, uh, uh, Opanaiko, uh, leading, uh, leading inward, leading onwards. <laughs> inwards or onwards, there's, there's debates. Ehipasiko, uh, say, uh, so inviting one to come and see. That's right, I got them the wrong way around. Ehipasiko, ehi, come and see, inviting one to come and see. Opanaiko, leading onwards or inwards. <laughs> Depending on whether you, it's inward going out or outward coming in. Uh, Pachatang viditabo vinyuhi, to be seen by each wise person for themselves. Doesn't give us much to, to hang on to, but it's about not hanging on. It's about being Dhamma and not having a concept for it. So now I see the clock has gone round to 4.07, and I think it's about uh, an hour for the duration of the talk, so I offer these thoughts for consideration this week. People have been um, diligent in sending in a few questions. And uh, let's see. So the first one, why do you believe practices support an awakening from the dream? Isn't awakening spontaneous and can happen at any time to anyone? Do practices just make our dream a more pleasant sleep, i.e. it's better to be peaceful and calm than angry and agitated? In reality, with awakening, aren't both states empty and just so? I'm coming from a Tony Parsons perspective, if one could call it a perspective. I read his books in Amravati Library. So I, I read this question, I thought, Tony Parsons? And I looked up Tony Parsons on Wikipedia, and Tony Parsons is both a journalist and a, a crime fiction writer. I thought, this can't be the right person. And then I thought, uh, maybe this person means Tony Packer, who is a woman, not a, not a man, who was out of the Zen tradition and sort of left that behind her and founded the Springwater Center. And she talks in this kind of non-dualistic uh, fashion. So I think rather than Tony Parsons, I thought it might be Nicholas Parsons, who used to run a game show called The Sale of the Century, but even less likely to be Nicholas Parsons than, than Tony Parsons. So I think Tony Packer is meant here. And... Um, so that, uh, I mean, this is a, a long debate. There are people like Krishnamurti or um, uh, uh, Advaita Vedanta teachers like um, um, uh, Punjaji um, and uh, so forth, uh, or like Tony Packer. I, I presume I haven't read uh, much of Tony Packer over the years, but say so, you know, all practices are intrusions and nothing to practice, nothing to do. You, know, you are the ultimate reality. Just wake up to that. You just realize that's what that's what you are there's no thing to do and as it says here aren't both states empty and just so and if that was realized moment by moment 
fine, great, sadhu anamodana, I would say. But the point of practice is, is that we start from the position of, uh, I am this person, I'm a woman, I'm a man, I'm an American, I'm British, I'm German, that's what I am. So that the degree to which the mind is drawn in by its dreams, <laughs> and, is, uh, that, uh, and believes in those, and uh, then the practices are useful. That's why the, the Buddha spent uh, 45 years uh, sort of laying out these different words and ideas and practices and forms for us to use to, uh, because it's not just a matter of having the idea of saying, you know, all, you know, all states are empty, um, and uh, everything is just so. Great. <laughs> and, uh, it, uh, as it says here, isn't awakening spontaneous and can happen any, at any time to anyone? I think the short answer is no. <laughs> I say it does happen from time to time. I think it's, my, my rough calculation on this is about one in ten million. That there, there I would say it's, sometimes there are genuine, uh, experiences where someone, uh, like Krishnamurti or others who just have a spontaneous awakening and in one moment suddenly the mind uh, genuinely and completely awakens to the, the fundamental reality. And um, that does happen, but I think it really is about one in ten million or maybe one in a hundred million. It's pretty rare. And it's certainly not the case for most people, just statistically. I would, having been in this business for 40 years or so, I uh, would... Out of my own, again, taking a bit of a scientific track, statistically, I would say it is not the case that awakening is spontaneous and can happen at any time to anyone. That is, by my experience, is not the way it is. Uh, but it does happen. Uh, from time to time, it does happen. Um, also, with this um, this kind of non-dualistic approach, one thing that is, uh, is, uh, is kind of tricky and uh, comes up for discussion a lot is, and I think I talked about it, either last week or the week before, is how the mind can be selective about what is empty and what's not empty. So things like my responsibility or, or yeah, my, <laughs> uh, my, um, my restraint or, or my painful feelings, they become empty, but my, my fun, my enjoyment, my self-gratification, that's definitely solid. <laughs> so that the mind is happy to grasp onto and identify the th that, that which is pleasant and is happy to see as empty the things that are inconvenient or uncomfortable or painful or not wanted. Um, but the, uh, so there, there can be a, uh, a biased quality, a, a partiality that the, and that's where the thinking mind and having a quick thinking mind is a real hindrance because it's like having a really good lawyer. You know, a, a good lawyer can make a case for anything that oh, black is white, up is down, um, and so on and so forth. And, yeah, a, a good lawyer, a good debater can make a case for absolutely anything. <laughs> and, uh, so having a quick mind, uh, coupled, coupled with non-dual, non-dual philosophy, Advaita Vedanta and such like, can, uh, get you into a lot of trouble. And so that it's, uh, it's important to not be, um, partial, to not, to, to be sincere and to, to uh, uh, say to genuinely be looking upon every condition as, as empty, whether the, the conditions you like, the conditions you don't like, <laughs> and not just making excuses for your own defilements. It's often it's kind of interesting how some of these uh, non non dualistic teachers end up with numerous sexual partners and uh, surrounded by all kinds of scandals and with money and and power and sex. And it's like oh, if everything was empty. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, how come they have uh, nine wives or they've got $150 million squirreled away in a Swiss bank account that nobody knew about? And it's like, that doesn't sound very non-dualistic. Yeah. I'm not mentioning any names, deliberately, but um, the, these things do happen. But there are some uh, some great beings like uh, Sri Ramana Maharshi, who had a spontaneous awakening when he was 17 years old, who uh, I would say was a, a genuine embodiment of that, that he he was naturally uh, ascetic. He, di he didn't need anything, and that's how he lived. He, he lived in an extremely... Um, I don't think he even felt like he was being an ascetic. It was just being who he is. <laughs> but it manifested in a, a, a life of very, very few needs and demands and extremely sympathetic to the, the people around him and ready to serve and be available to, to teach. And so that, um, that uh, uh, I think with th this kind of an approach, it's, uh, again, maybe to quote T.S. Eliot, I haven't quoted him this week, but uh, to, uh, to quote T.S. Eliot, between the idea and the fact there falls the shadow. So between the, the motion and the act, between the idea and the fact, there is a shadow. So the idea of non-duality and seeing all things as completely empty and such is one thing. The actuality of it is another. So another question. Uh, thank you for all of the available talks and for these live streams. They have had, uh, they have had a significant positive impact, impact on my days, especially during this time. This week's topic seems fairly open-ended, so I hope this is related. I find I have an aversion to be boxed in to my likes and dislikes, or overly value or identify with my personality. It bothers me when people use their likes and dislikes as a way to differentiate themselves from other people, and I try not to do this. I recently listened to the Dhamma talk on which you shared your poetry, and on another occasion I saw Bhikkhu Bodhi perform a composition of his on a piano. It's interesting. I had no idea Bhikkhu Bodhi played the piano. Life is full of surprises. In both cases, I was surprised. Yeah, me too. Uh, I enjoy playing music and arts, but also have a strong aversion to identify as a musician or have attention on myself. My question is, do you have advice on how to function in the world as a personality without using that personality or identity to create distance between yourself and other people and feeding envy or desire in others? Thank you. Well, whether you feed envy or desire in other people is kind of under, out of our control. Sometimes you can just be walking around uh, doing nothing very much and somebody is really inspired and envious of you and somebody else is really critical of you. They kind of, and you don't even think that you're doing anything. So uh, the way we behave to, can, to a degree, affect others, but exactly what people make of what they perceive is really out of our hands. And, um, and it's, it's interesting, uh, in some, uh, not recently, but in the past, within a, a couple of days, I've had uh, two different people saying, you know, I'm really inspired by the way you do X, Y, Z, and somebody saying, you know, I'm really upset. You know, it's really annoying by the way you, you know, the way you do X, Y, Z. It's like, what? Have you guys been talking to each other? It was, it was kind of eerie. Like within 24 hours, it was completely opposite. Is there something going on here? What's, what's happening? But anyway, going to this, um, so personality, again, going to the, um, 
the word persona, if we remember that being a poet or being a musician is a mask, it's a thing like, or being a Dhamma teacher, you know, I don't think of myself as being a teacher. If I'm by myself in my kuti, I'm not a teacher, I'm just this. Uh, I'm not teaching anybody anything. Um, if I come out here and there's a microphone and a camera and a crowd of people, then woof, suddenly I'm a teacher. As soon as I get off the chair and walk out, I'm not a teacher anymore. So if you remember, you're putting on a mask and you are, um, uh, say, engaging in a particular activity, that's, that's the real moi, the, the real me at that moment. It's real enough. But the, the, the mind that recollects, this is a performance. It's not the, the actuality. This is a, 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 a deliberate seeming. Then you can sincerely, like a really good actor, really gives themselves to the role, but part of the mind that still knows this is an act. This, this is my profession. Uh, and they can, a method actor will stay in the role even <laughs> sort of between performances or between takes in a film. Um, they stay in, in mode, in co- even in costume the whole time. But still part of them remembers, you know, I am. Daniel Day-Lewis, or you know, I am yeah, Marlon Brando, or, or whoever, and that um, that the mind that recona- recollects this is not really what I am, and if someone says, oh, you're a fantastic poet, or you're such a brilliant musician, this is great, you mean so much to me, it's like, you can feel, yeah, I'm very glad this is important to you, it's valuable to you, I don't need to be seen by you as a poet, or as a musician, I don't need to be seen as a Dhamma teacher. And the, the more that that's genuine, that I don't need to be seen as a teacher, when I get the signals that I'm not a very good teacher, um, um, people are finding me really boring, I'm saying the same things over and over again, I'm really kind of depressing and confusing and upsetting, then uh, that's the impression that person has. But if I get enough of those signals, I'll probably think, okay, time to not climb, not to climb up into the chair anymore. <laughs> you know, that that particular performance is not having a good effect, so therefore do something else, or don't do anything. So that the more that uh, we uh, we hold those things lightly within ourselves, then uh, uh, it's, it becomes easier. If you, uh, if you build a lot of value in how the world sees you, right there is dukkha. That's a lot of suffering right there. I used to spend a huge amount of time worrying about how I was seen and wanting to be seen in a particular way and not wanting to be seen in other ways. And uh, it took me years to recognize just the, the kind of weight, the, the, the heaviness of carrying that around. Once I realized I was doing that and I was really wanting to be approved and wanting to be liked and wanting to, to get things right all the time, then I deliberately started to, to act in ways where I, I, uh, I didn't uh, try to score points, or I was stepping down from that, and, and um, uh, to be, um, say, d- uh, bringing that to mind as a as a kind of deliberate reflection. So I used to, when I was living here in Amravati in the late eighties, early nineties, uh, I would bring this this uh, theme to mind over and over again every day. It was just do what you do and let the world make of it what it will. When I first brought that phrase to mind, suddenly in me went, no, 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 don't even think that. No, stop, stop, stop. You can't, that's dangerous. And there was such like an intense emotional reaction, like, wow, that hit the mark. <laughs> that's, that's right on target. But something was desperate to, uh, to, um, try and craft things so that I would be approved. And, and the idea of just letting people have whatever impression they wanted to was, uh, it was, 
really threatening to that self-sense, to the ego. But I found that was really helpful. So I did for, for a couple of years, two or three years. I would bring that up all the time. Just do what you do. Be mindful. Just try and come from a good place of kindness and mindfulness and wisdom. And then some people will like it. Some people will not like it. And most people will ignore it completely. And uh, and so that uh, you also, just as I was saying at the beginning, it's, most of it's not under our personal control. And so that... That, uh, I would say, in terms of, of your question, um, is, a, is a helpful attitude. That um, It's also, the, um, as you, uh, you mentioned, the, uh, the addiction to um, personality. <laughs> what was, what was the, the, the phrasing of it? Um, that uh, addiction to... Uh, to uh, to the uh, the kind of oh no that was in the next question so uh, I'm reading that um, so that the uh, recognizing that that is an, uh, something that can be changed you can't change what the world does but you you do have control over the attitude that's where we can have an effect and I would say everything hinges around attitude. And so that, uh, so now it's radically different, this, from this side of things, <laughs> that, uh, uh, I'm far more at ease of being approved, not being approved. It doesn't carry so much weight. I don't, I don't lose sleep, lose sleep over that at all. It's a, and there's a palpable sense of, of relief in not having to be that thing or being obsessed or addicted to, to trying to create a particular impression. So next question. This one's about addiction. Dear Ajahn, regarding that addictive propensity to appropriate experience and construe it into personal existence, could you please elaborate a bit on the eye-making, mind-making, me-making, latent tendencies mentioned in some suttas? Well, <laughs> so it just so happens, I was talking about that a lot today. And um, the, um, I, th I feel that they're kind of, uh, the... Um, why the, the word addiction caught my attention is it is a kind of an addiction. There's a, um, that I feeling, even if the I feeling is not pleasant, is around, I'm an awful person, I'm a failure, uh, I'm falling apart, I can't do it anymore, uh, nobody loves me, I, I used to have it, now I haven't got it. That's addictive, that's as addictive as I'm somebody special, I'm really great, I've really got things the way that I like, I am a, a good person. It doesn't have to be with a, a positive or pleasant tone. And in Western society, often the, the self-critical selfings uh, are, are kind of more potent and uh, more deep-rooted than um, the many of the positive or, or kind of sweeter-tasting ones. Uh, uh, again, uh, I think I was quoting uh, uh, Gurdjieff a, a few weeks ago where he said, uh, you can take away anything from people except for their suffering. They'll hang on to that until death. So that uh, my suffering, like me, we, we love that, that um, quality of defined being and that when that is challenged or when that falls away, that's felt as a, a an ego death. That's a disaster. And so me, me failing, um, me not being anything, uh, that, that's terrible. And so that we we shy away from that kind of ego death with with great vigor. So I feel it's just to recognize that it's an addiction, and that in in terms of of so the neurology of it. 
it's what we're addicted to really is dopamine. It's a sort of the, the, the kind of, uh, uh, neurotransmitter, the, the chemical in the brain that hits that, aff uh, that affirming center that says, yes, you know, I am a terrible person. Yes. <laughs> this is me. Yes. This is mine. Yes. This was mine and I lost it. Yes. So it's a kind of chemical reaction that occurs within us that we're, we're like as if we we're addicted to alcohol or nicotine or, or, or cocaine, that there's, a, there's a, a, a literally a physical addiction. We, we love that feeling, even though it might be based on a, a painful experience. Uh, me as a victim. So like with any addictions, the first thing to do is to recognize I'm an addict. <laughs> That the, there is addiction, that the mind is, is locked onto this, and really, something really likes that defined being. It, it loves that. It says, yes, that's what I am. And I, I often talk about this because it's, a, it's kind of interesting where, uh, like a, an ordinary everyday example that I like to give is how if you are, uh, you're, you're busy with some task. You've been doing the washing up, or you've been cleaning the house, or you're, you know you're in lockdown and you finally got everything tidied and you've got the the, the place sorted out. The uh, the dishes are done and the the, the the sitting room has been fixed up and everyone has gone to bed. And you kind of plunk yourself down and you think, "Thank goodness that's over." So the mind has been fixated on a particular task, and that's what you are. I am cleaning up. I am doing this. This is my job. And then you you plunk yourself down. There's a long exhalation. <sighs> and then, since the task is finished, what am I? There's this, this sense of, oh, that's done. What's there to do now? And if you notice, there's a sort of, oh, oh, oh. there's a kind of dislocation, a disoriented feeling. Like, oh. And then we think, oh my goodness, there's these 150 emails I haven't replied to. <sighs> So it's another job that needs me to do it. But at that moment, you remember the 150 emails, something goes, yes. Because that suddenly defined being has been reborn. It's like, I am this. And that what was uneasy or what was challenging or most awkward or painful was this, well, there, there's the body on the sofa and, oh, what am I? What is it? Oh, there's no thing there. And even if it's a responsibility or a pain or a debt, Oh my goodness, there's my overdraft. Ah! You know, then, um, there's a relief that comes with that. And I, again, I, I'm not reading people's minds, but I would suggest most of us have had that experience from one, one time or another. Right there, that's, that's, talk, that shows you the addiction to that dopamine flush of, of, uh, a hunker up, a monkara, eye making and mind making. So recognizing there's an addiction, then the mind can begin to work on that. And like any addiction, getting off an, an addictive process is painful. <laughs> Weaning yourself off the drug of choice, the bhava, the becoming drug, that it, it's effort like coming off sugar or alcohol or caffeine or tobacco or whatever. It takes work. But uh, the, if there's a, a patience and an endurance of those awkward feelings, not following along those self-creating habits. Knowing the pull of wanting that thing, and just knowing it as a feeling of wanting, uh, and letting it go, letting it go, letting it go, then the, the system changes. There is a, really a freeing of the system from that addictive process, both mentally and physically as well. And so then that there's genuinely not a... Um, 
a kind of dependency on that uh, the kind of eye making and and mind making. Dear Ajahn Amaro, thank you for the valuable Sunday talks and the meditation sessions on Saturday. My question is related to anatta. I can understand the concept of non-self now, as I am older and retired and spend my time learning and following the Buddhist way of life more, more than when I was younger. In real life, (laughs) I would say rather than real life, the the other life, um, this is difficult to come to terms with, probably even as a monk. How can you explain this valuable Buddhist teaching to young people who have ambitions and, and strive in order to f- uh, fulfill their education or climb up the ladder in their career. If I tried to explain to my children when they were younger the concept of anatta, they would have happily stopped working hard at school. Thank you, Ajahn, for your valuable response. May you attain nirvana. Well, thank you for your good wishes. Um, well, I would say that if you really explain the concept of anatta in a good way to your kids, they would be happily working very hard <laughs> And without creating stress and difficulty for themselves, because there's, there's different kinds of desire. The, the desire, the kind of driven and self-obsessed desire, is called tanha, and tanha uh, is uh, better translated into English as craving. So that's the one that's the cause of suffering. The other kind of, of desire is chanda, and that is actually the uh, can be wholesome or unwholesome or neutral. So chanda is the ability of the mind to put its uh, to to lock onto a particular thing and to be interested, to have zeal, to have enthusiasm. So we need chanda, um, and so that uh, uh, chanda is one of the, the what's called the four bases of success. So the, this is called the idipada. So chanda is the first interest or zeal, virya energy, and the third one is chitta or uh, sort of contemplation consideration. And the fourth one is vimangsa, or review. So the Buddha said, these to succeed at any task, whether it's making your breakfast, passing an exam, um, uh, setting off a, a bomb, or realizing enlightenment, wholesome, unwholesome, neutral, um, we need these four qualities. So they are, in, intrinsically, they're, they're neutral. But to, to realize enlightenment, the Buddha had to have chanda, virya, jitta, and vimangsa, so that... Um, if we understand um, that these these four qualities, these four bases of success, they are in themselves free of any kind of self-view or conceit. They don't have to come from an egotistical place at all. Just as the the um, the, the work to realize full and complete enlightenment. So there can be interest and uh, uh, and uh, say enthusiasm, zeal. But that doesn't have to be, you know, I'm excited, I'm interested, I'm enthusiastic. Rather, this is something worth doing, yes, you know, uh, let's do it. And that can come from a, a completely non-egotistical place. So that I think in, in terms of your question about uh, anatta, it's uh, if we can f- separate out the, the ability to make effort, to give direction to our life, to set skillful goals, Separate that out from the, the desire to become the bhavatana and, and vibhavatana, the desire to get rid of, then we can work really hard. We can work very effectively and bring about good results. But it's, uh, because there's no sense of self involved, then the results are, are very peaceful. It's, it's work, it's doing, but that work is not stressful or burdensome. 
there's a lot more could, that could be said on that, but I think just getting acquainted with that structure is is really helpful because um, just because there's no self involved doesn't mean to say that there's no effort. Otherwise, how could there be a factor of the Eightfold Path right effort, samavayamo? That similarly, that there couldn't be a right effort if that was intrinsically part of self. There has to be a way that effort can be made free of self-view, free of egotistical impulses. Next one. Hi. Thank you for your talks, and thank you for making the talks available online. I live on a small island on the Hawkesbury River in New South Wales, oh, Australia. Oh, interesting. Never heard of the Hawkesbury River before. And I feel very fortunate to be able to listen and learn from here. Can you please talk about your experiences with anxiety and what advice you have for dealing with it? I often catch myself feeling anxious. It seems to be my default setting despite having nothing major to worry about. Kindest regards. Ah, uh, yes, well, <laughs> I spent um, many, many years in the um, anxiety vihara, and uh, that was, um, uh, I often mention how it was so normal for me to be, my basic relationship to, to life and the universe and everything was, if it exists, worry about it. That was, uh, just like yourself, it's a default position. That was automatic, even things that didn't involve me. And I remember one time... Um, I was light, lighting a, a wood-burning fire in what's now the, the monk's sewing room. There was a wood-burning stove in there back in the old days. And uh, there were some newspapers to light the fire with. And uh, there was a, a paper that was about three years old. And there was an art, and, you know, in a monastery, that, uh, at least in those days, there wasn't much to read. And, you know, mine was hungry for information. So I found myself reading this report about a, a goalkeeper in a football match who made a stupid mistake and uh, uh, allowed a very easy goal to go in past him. And I was full of you know, anxiety. Oh, poor, you know, poor guy. It's like, I don't even care about football. And it was three years ago. And, and here I am in the, you know, in the, the shrine room at Amravati lighting a fire. And I'm, I'm worried about this, this, uh, this footballer. And what, uh, and, uh, it's not my problem. <laughs> but still, <laughs> the anxiety that was, was there in my body, in my, in my emotions, my feelings. So I thought, you know, this is crazy. <laughs> So, uh, in terms of giving advice, uh, it was, I mean, the very fact that you can write that down is helpful. Because it took me, I'd even been a monk for six or seven years, maybe eight years before I even realized that I was a compulsive warrior. I, I kind of assumed this was how it was for everybody. I just thought this is, this is the, how the human family relates to life, is worry. That's what we all do. And, uh, it, it was, I was been in the monastery for a long time, a sort of professional meditator for years before I realized, oh, this is not universal, and it actually is a thing that arises and passes away, which was uh, a completely novel concept. So first of all, recognizing that it is a transient phenomenon, it's not who and what we are, was was very helpful. And there was two, two manners of approach that uh, I found useful, uh, one physical and one mental. So at that time, and this was in the late 80s, uh, uh, Lumpur Sumedha was talking, was teaching a lot about mindfulness of emotion and also how we relate to obstructions, obstacles, defilements. And he'd say, um, don't think of it in terms of me and my problems, but rather here is the Buddha seeing the Dhamma. Here's the awake mind seeing the way things are. Normally, in, in ordinary condition, like I began the talk this afternoon, we be begin with, I am this person. This is who I am. And that, and that 
and I recognize I've got a, I'm a worrier. I've got a, a problem with worry and anxiety. I, I, that's, I, I have. I'm just being realistic. And so his encouragement was, uh, the, that's uh, a paradigm the mind has created. I am a person with a worry problem. And if I get rid of my worry problem, I'll be a person without a worry problem, and that will be good. So change the paradigm from rather me and my problems, and I've got to get rid of my problem now, so I'll be me without my problem in the future. Change the paradigm to here is the awake mind seeing the way things are. Here's the Buddha seeing the Dhamma. And that was so helpful, because you could, there was a deeply entrenched attitude, but I have got a worry problem. I am worrying all the time. He also said, uh, no, uh, notice how we tell ourselves stories, like, I'm worried all the time, or I'm always lustful, or I'm always jealous. So we might say things like that, and, and we're trying to be honest or, or practical, but in actuality, isn't it the fact that they come and go? You know, you aren't lustful all the time. Sometimes you're brushing your teeth or you're eating food and you forget to be lustful. You aren't jealous all of the time. You aren't angry all of the time. It comes and goes. You might frequently be angry. Or you might experience jealousy a lot, but it does come and go. And, uh, and he would, again, he would always be saying, look, see for yourself. So then using the meditation and the capacity to reflect, you think, wow, amazing. The teacher's right. <laughs> What a thought. Uh, yes, that worry is there a lot of the time, but it does come and go. It's not permanent. It's not absolute. Aha. Uh -huh. So I tell myself I'm always worried, but that's not actually what is the, the moment by moment experience. Aha. Uh -huh. So not just aha uh -huh, that the teacher was right and I was wrong, <laughs> but rather look at that. It is an impermanent condition. And so to, so look at the, the stories you tell yourself and ask, is that so? Is that the, is that the whole picture? Is that really true? And then let the quality of wisdom and mindfulness illuminate that. So, um, that, uh, you, uh, say the use of wise reflection and approaching it on the mental level and, uh, to, to change it. Like, well, here is the awake mind experiencing the feeling of worry arising and passing away. In this moment, it's like this. And then to be consciously aware when it, when it wasn't there, saying, ah, I'm brushing my teeth. At this moment, there isn't any worry. Aha. Uh -huh. He's, he's right, it's true. It does come and go. Then the, on the physical side, uh, the, uh, again, he was talking a lot about mindfulness of emotion, and he would point out how every emotion has a physical counterpart. For all of us, it's going to be different for everybody in, in different ways for different emotions, but for each of us, uh, if you're feeling fear or anger, you're feeling jealousy or lust or, or anxiety, there's going to be some kind of physical component. So deliberately take your attention off the thing that you're worried about or you're, you're angry with and bring it into the body. What is the feeling of anger? Uh, where does it sit in the body? What does it feel like? Where is it? What's its tone, its texture? And consciously letting go of the, the object and bringing it back to the, the subject and feeling in the body. So um, that was extraordinarily helpful as well in terms of anxiety because... Um, whenever I was, uh, I find myself being worried about um, um, an event or a memory or an idea or a plan or a person or a, a, a job, then, okay, stop worrying about the job. What does this feel like in the body? And there'd be a knot of t tightness in the, in my, my abdomen and down in the belly. And, and then, so bringing attention to that, feeling the, the tensing or stressing of the body, 
then just letting the awareness have its own effect, like knowing that tensing or tightening, rather than, oh, I should relax, you know, lighten up, I'm a you know, <laughs> you should relax, like a, another thing I should be doing, but rather just allowing the awareness to have its effect, then the body would soften. And then when the body relaxes, uh, particularly with anxiety, when the, if you let yourself breathe out, let the, the, the shoulders drop, or the, the, the abdomen, the, the belly soften, then if you then ask yourself, what was it that I was worried about? What was the problem? What was really interesting, whenever I did that, was particularly if you remembered to do that last part of, okay, what was the problem? It would take two or three seconds to reconstitute the problem. So it was, oh, what was it? Oh, yes! <laughs> and then you remember, and you kind of re... There's the kind of, uh, the ahankara, the eye-making. I've got to do that job, or I'm supposed to be there at three o'clock, or I've got to... And they, that problem, the problematicness is formed. Without the, the mind forming it as a problem, it's just the way things are. Here we are, we're supposed to be catching a plane at three o'clock, we're on the, the M25 and it's two o'clock. Will we get there in time? Don't know, we're not moving. Frequently the traffic is stationary on the M25 between here and Heathrow Airport. Will we make it, will we not make it? Don't know. So you could let the, the, the body relax and then ask yourself, what was the problem? And then suddenly, oh yeah, the plane. <laughs> but it would take a couple of seconds to make the, to make it a problem. So again, if you see that over and over and over and over again, it's recognized very directly, the problem isn't the world, it's not the people. The problematicness of any condition, any experience, is coming from a, an emotional reaction, from our conditioning. In and of itself, it's just such, it's just this way. Going back to Tony Packer, it's just, yeah, it's just this. This being on the, on the motorway, not, not moving, it's like this. <laughs> and you're not suppressing that worry, you're not, uh, just distracting from it, you're just not creating it, you're not creating that particular set of perceptions as a problem, it's just like this. And then either the car gets there or it doesn't get there in time for the plane. And if you don't get there in time, you adapt. If you do get there in time, you just, do what's necessary, you adapt to that. Okay, let's see. How can I let go of thoughts if they sometimes flood uh, your mind or my mind? Um, I think, kind of repeat the above. <laughs> whether the thoughts are to do with anxiety, whether they're worried thoughts, or they are uh, planning thoughts, or remembering thoughts, or excited thoughts, then Similarly, that sense of, of letting go of the content of thinking and that agitation and feeling that in the body, the mind wrapped up in this planning or remembering or regretting or reminiscing or, uh, the, just to deliberately withdraw the attention from the object, bring it back onto the subject to say, okay, that's, there's an important thing to be thought about. Yes, that requires attention. But for this, these 10 seconds, five seconds, I can just let go of that and notice what does the body feel? How is the body being held? And then again, uh, a, um, the physical side of it, if you relax the, the body and just let go of that tension, because almost always when the mind is lost in a flow of thinking, there's a, a stressing, a tensing in the body that is unconscious. And if the body relaxes and is at ease and balanced and, and well integrated, 
then the fuel for that papancha, that conceptual proliferation, is somewhat reduced. And then again, on the, on the, you can work with it on the mental side as well. And one of the things that I like to encourage is to recognize that uh, the thinking mind, we, we have a, a blind assumption that every thought that goes through our mind is both meaningful and true. That they're re- our thoughts are realistic uh, and they have value. They, they match reality and they are, they are valuable. So if you take the principle that most of my thoughts are neither true nor valuable, <laughs> it's more just like the, the uh, replaying of old TV programs, watching repeats through, through, through YouTube or, or uh, uh, an old show that uh, you watched on television. Uh, yes, you, you can understand the words, but it, you're not really that interested. You know what happens. It's not that important. It's not that valuable. There's content that you can perceive, but the mind is not imputing value or meaning to it. So that we can change the attitude towards the content of thought. And so to help, um, the, to, to be recognized that, uh, that the thought, most of the thoughts, I mean, uh, probably about 5%, or maybe 2% to 5% actually are true and are valuable. <laughs> But the other 95%, 98%, is just the kind of repeats and just uh, reverberations of uh, perception. And not particularly helpful. So that to re- change the attitude towards the content of our thinking, so that most of our thoughts we can relate to like the sound of a plane going overhead or the sound of the birds in the trees or a lawnmower going by. It's just a sound that we hear and yeah, it's, it's there, but so what? The mind doesn't have to give any value to it. And when that attitude is changed, then the, the, the inner experience is one of much greater spaciousness, is greater kind of, uh, capacity and, and ease. That they, we can uh, recognize that the, the less that we habitually believe in our thinking, then the, the more spacious and peaceful our, our life is. Dear Ajahn Amaro, there is a dream interpretation theory in the Gestalt school, if I remember well, stating that all the characters in our dreams are representations of ourselves. If it's true that we dream ourselves into existence, and I deeply feel it is, would it be right view to use this concept to connect with all other creatures' creations in our dreamed reality? Thank you for the engaging theme. I look forward to an awakening talk. Um... Well, uh, uh, always is a bit of a dangerous word. <laughs> I think uh, I would tend to say sometimes, um, because the, the, my experience of dreams is uh, again there is a a mixture of uh, once in a while, maybe a couple of times a year. I think I find that dreams are really significant, and that there's a there is a message and there's a kind of a coherence to them, and it's and there's a clear sort of yes. But uh, uh, my experience is generally like our, like our thinking. Most of our dreams are just repeats. They're just sort of the, the reverberations of the day. So all kinds of mixture of stuff conjured up from our memory. I mean, it's to the extent that everyone that I meet, you know, I could say that all of you are an aspect of me. You know, because each of you has, uh, that's gathered here in, in the Sala Ramravati or everybody at the other end of this camera, yeah, uh, Oh, I, I don't know who's there, but <laughs> the people here, I can say, you're each an aspect of me because 
I only know the you that I have created. That makes sense. That uh, my world is not the world. It's my my mind's representation of the world. So I have I know my representation of Venerable Jitasongaro, my representation of Tamunanyu, my representation of Sister Kaminda, of uh, my representation of Tanjalito, uh, Sister Nyanasiri. I don't know you, I know my mind's representation of you. So, in that respect, I can say everybody that I meet is an aspect of me. Yeah, but in ordinary everyday life, <laughs> no, no. It's like, that's Jitasangaro, that's Mununyo, that's uh, Sister Nyanasiri. They're different people. Um, and I think it, you could say that, I mean, I'm not a Gestalt therapist, but I would say, yeah, to a degree you could say that, but functionally and, and in all practical senses, no, they're just different things, they're different objects, different perceptions that have popped up from, from anywhere and everywhere. Um, so I, I would be hesitant to read too much into the content of, of all of our, our dream world. Um, the, um, but as I was saying though, also the, um, sometimes what pops up in our dreams can be very significant. Uh, like I was saying about that, the, the dream with the, the cabbage box <laughs> and the humans have had more than their fair share of this planet. Um, yeah, sometimes dreams can be very significant. Uh, and like with Tibetan, uh, the Tibetan dream yoga, uh, there was a, I think he's passed away now, but the Mindraling Rinpoche, uh, who lived in, uh, I think he lived in Dehradun, uh, the last part of his life. Um, he uh, was a sort of master of um, dream yoga, and there's quite a few books by the um, by the Dalai Lama and uh, other uh, the Tibetan teachers on on that. If people are interested, also I I knew uh, there was a. a a woman who used to come along to our sessions in San Francisco quite regularly called um, Fariba Bogzaran. And uh, she was studying at a, a place called the California Institute for Integral Studies. And her thesis, her PhD, was uh, Encounters with the, with the Divine in Lucid Dream States. So those were some very interesting conversations we had. And the sort of tr crossover between lucid dreaming and encounters with divine beings in dream states. And, uh, and I, uh, so sometimes, and uh, I think this is one of the aspects of dream yoga in the Tibetan tradition is, uh, encountering teachers or, or, or mentors in the, in the dream world and receiving teachings in the dream world quite consciously and learning lessons like going on a retreat, but in the dream dimension rather than in the dream bardo rather than in the, the human realm, uh, can be sort of developed as a, as a skill, as a practice. And, uh, Fariba, if I remember correctly, had a, uh, that was her field of studies. Was you know, to what degree is that effective? To what degree do, does that bring around, uh, bring about genuine and helpful transformations? Those of you who are familiar with Carl Jung, also the, the, a few years ago, my my parting gift from California when I left there from uh, the Spirit Rock community was a, a copy of what's called the Red Book, which is this collection of Jung's paintings and visionary experiences that he had over, a, I think, a 13-year period that. It was all so weird and wonderful and colorful and a lot to do with encountering divine beings and uh, sort of mentors and other spiritual entities of different kinds. That uh, They didn't publish it, not only while he was alive, but cons until considerably after he'd passed away because the family thought this could ruin his reputation. But uh, it's, uh, it's quite, a beautiful, uh, um, quite a beautiful collection. He, the paintings that he did of, of different visionary experiences, um, and then dialogues he had with different entities that he met in these visionary experiences, and and uh, quite plainly things that were valuable. Something a lot was quite mysterious and strange and 
not comprehensible, but a lot was very insightful and valuable for him. So I think um, in terms of, of this question, there can be um, valuable lessons that are learned from uh, from the dream world, or like I was just saying about the Buddha's five symbolic dreams before his enlightenment, that they there was this very clear affirmation is, yes, uh, uh, noble being, you are on the brink of a, of a great transformation, uh, and this is to, to, uh, this lets you know that indeed everything is very, very ripe. And then uh, uh, the next day, um, as I understand it, was his full and complete enlightenment. So that uh, uh, personally, I I was interested in um, lucid dreaming. I, I read quite a lot of Carlos Castaneda uh, when I was a teenager and a college student, and I used to have lucid dreams, and I got quite fascinated with that. I used to go to a um, a spiritual teacher, a lecturer called Trevor Ravenscroft, uh, in, gave weekly lectures in London. And a lot of very sort of colourful esotericists, not esotericists, esotericists would gather around his his talks, a very colorful crowd of people, and a few were interested in lucid dreaming. And so I kind of got into that. And, and there's ways you can develop that quite consciously, learning to to, be, to wake up. Lucid dreaming means waking up inside a dream. You know you're dreaming, and you can take conscious, deliberate action inside the dream realm. And so, uh, again, I think the Tibetan dream yoga is, has a lot to, uh, to do with that. And so on this, this put, uh, and so these lucid dreams were getting clearer and clearer. I was getting quite, quite pleased with how things were progressing. And then, uh, uh, one, one day I had this incredibly lucid dream and I woke up and I was wide awake as, as clearly awake as I am now. Uh, it was a very, uh, cl- uh, vivid place. Everything was, was very sort of normal and natural. And, and I thought, wow, this is, uh, I'm dreaming and I'm completely awake. This is great. And it was sort of more clear and more of a sense of, of autonomy than in any other situation that I'd known before. And so uh, I'm not uh, trying to be too coarse, but uh, anyway, so I thought, okay, what can I do? Okay, I'll fly. Let's, let's fly. You know, I can, I can, let's, let's experience flying. So I, I, I sort of, I floated off the ground, but I only got about a, a meter or three or four feet off the ground. And that was as high as I could go. And I, oh, well, not very satisfying, but at least I'm off the ground. And then, so I started flying through this, this landscape in, in the dream. And so then I thought, okay, well, I can do whatever I want. Um, you know, uh, what, what shall I do? What, what's, what's good to do? I can, I can do anything I want. Everything is, everything is legal. Everything is possible. What, what shall I do? I thought, a woman. Get a woman. So as, as in the dream world, these things happen. A female figure, excuse me for being blunt or coarse in this. this but it, was a, it was actually a very insightful moment because I saw this female figure off to one side and I kind of zoomed over, flying over three or four feet off the ground, and, and there was this, this uh, woman there. And it started off, she was actually like a, a, a real person. But as soon as I touched her, she turned into a mannequin, like a, a window, a shop window dummy. And I could, I could feel the sort of porcelain, the kind of plasticky, hard surface. Uh, it was like it wasn't a real person. It was like a, a dummy. But, the, but there was still a bit of life there, and this, the head turned around towards me and gave me this look. So, really? There was no words. It was just this look that said, really? This is the best you can think of? This is pathetic. And I woke up. So I woke up feeling very embarrassed. But I thought, wow. 
But it was, it, uh, I mentioned it, I'm not trying to be kind of vulgar or coarse, but uh, it was a turning point, because when I woke up, I realized, I don't really know what I want. If I could do anything I, I wanted, uh, I'm sure I can do the best than just sort of jumping on the nearest woman. You know, life, life's got much more to it than that. So what's really important to me? So it really, it started that, uh, or, or catalyzed that sense of, well, what's really valuable? And then through those those lectures with with uh, Trevor Ravenscroft and and sort of uh, uh, looking more and more into things over that last year that I spent in, in England through seventy six to seventy seven, by the time I got to the end of that and I did my final exams, the conclusion I come to was the only thing that really matters is spiritual development. Everything else is is gravy. Really, is uh, is beside the point. That's the only thing that, that matters. And then also during that time, as I was reading more and more uh, spiritual literature, particularly from Asia, I was reading uh, particularly teachings of Indian Indian gurus like Sri Ramana Maharshi or, or from China like Chuangzu or Lao Tzu. Then uh, there was this really clear sense of whatever those people did to get to to see life from where they see it, I'll do it. Whatever Chuangzu did to get there where he's sees life from, like that, I don't care what it is, I'll do it. Or, or like the, the way of the, of Sufi, you know, the, the Sufi teachings in the, a book called The Way of the Sufi, the, some of the, the words, they would jump off the page. These are from like India or China or these Sufi teachings, they were like, and you know, that's absolutely true. So whatever it takes to see world, the world like this person does or from that place of non-personal realization, I'll do it. I don't care what it, I don't care what it takes. That's that's what's valuable. So um, that strange dream encounter did have a very catalytic effect. Had a had a, a, a very strong effect on me. I don't know what that means in terms of gestalt therapy or, <laughs> or my uh, psychological profile, but it did have a powerful effect. So I see we're at five o'clock. So I'll maybe just read one more. This is quite long, uh, but I'll read it. Dear Ashan Amaro, thank you so much for your invaluable teachings and many thanks to the whole Amravati Monastery for being a continual resource of inspiration and guidance. My question is, where do you place the Higgs field in Buddhism, if anywhere? The Higgs field is a reference to quantum mechanics and quantum field theory, I think. Um, and the Higgs, it's my understanding. So when I read about the Higgs field, it seems related to anatta, not self. The field arose very shortly after the Big Bang. It is invisible and always present everywhere. Elementary particles that we are made of have no mass of their own, but when they move through the Higgs field, they acquire mass through the interaction with the field. Without the Higgs field, they would roam around at the speed of light in the universe without mass and matter would not exist in the way we understand it. The key here is that the elementary particles are not isolated, self-generated particles, but rather potentials, quote-unquote, that are given, quote-unquote, mass as they move through the Higgs field. Through evolutionary time and many other factors and forces, they come together and stars and planets and water and grass and humans develop. So, even from a scientific view, it seems that it would be fair to say that we humans, and everything else, in essence, are made up of particles without their own mass. 
that have evolved into shapes and forms through the interaction with the Higgs field, but in essence, we don't exist as separate selves, i.e. anatta. What is your take on trying to blend science and Buddhism like this? And when people have experiences of not being a self, of being formless, connected to everything, could it be the ever-present formless Higgs field that we are tapping into? The background coming into the foreground at times, so to speak. It may seem as just theoretical questions, but to me they're not. Both Buddhism and science are important pathways for me to understand and live in the world. Thank you, and may you all be well. So in case you're afraid this is going to turn into a three-hour lecture on speculation about quantum field theory and Buddhism, um, it just so happens, quite, quite by chance, um, I watched a documentary yesterday on the life and work of David Bohm, uh, who wrote a book called um, Wholeness and the Implicate Order. And so uh, it's a very interesting character, and he had a lot of insights that, uh, as I was listening to this documentary and hearing, uh, I, I heard his name before and read a few bits and pieces of his, but uh, it was extremely interesting how um, his uh, description of reality, and so I'm taking, uh, he wrote sort of the textbook on quantum theory in 1951-52, that was what became the textbook in the, that era, when he was working at, at UC Berkeley, California, and uh, but he became kind of a, an outcast. He uh, he got thrown out of America because of his affiliations with a communist um, uh, background, and he went to live in Brazil. When he was in Brazil, he wrote this paper on uh, uh, hidden variables, and it was presenting this idea because he thought that even though he'd written the textbook on the sort of conventional quantum theory. He, by the time he finished the book, he realized it's not the whole story or something's being missed and you can't get quantum field theory to match up to general relativity theory. The, the macro world of Einstein and the micro world of Niels Bohr, they don't meet. And so he said, we're missing something. We're not seeing something. So again, not to go into a long lecture about this, but, uh, so anyway, he wrote this paper and he talked about hidden variables and this sort of under, this underpinning reality out of which these other properties emerge of the micro and the macro. So um, this uh, he did, he wrote it in order to, to start a dialogue and cause kind of deliberately to cause upset in the physics world to get the dialogue going. And he was astonished, according to this documentary, when there was no response. Almost no one made any kind of comment about it. Later on, he found out that a certain body of physicists. Were, were trying to prove him wrong, and a, a, a leading physicist who had been his mentor, Robert Oppenheimer, had said, uh, um, uh, he kind of put the task to many of his, his uh, co-workers, we have to prove him wrong. Um, if any of you can find anything wrong with this theory, then you, you know, let, let, let it be known. Um, no one can find anything wrong with his hidden variables paper. And so then that came back to Oppenheimer, and Oppenheimer declared, therefore we must ignore him. So it was almost like Galileo repeated. It's like, hang on, haven't we been here before? <laughs> like with the sun at the center of the solar system and the planets going around it. No, we can't afford for this to, to have any value, therefore pretend it's not there. Anyway, I'm not getting into the politics of the physics world, but uh, it was... Um, the, what he spoke about was the implicate order as that under that, that formless underpinning reality and the explicate order as this person is describing uh, here 
uh, electrons, uh, atoms, people, things, planets, birds, etc., is the explicate order, the formed world, what we would call uh, the, the world of the born, the created, the conditioned, the formed. And the implicate order is the unborn, the, uh, the uncreated, the unconditioned, the unformed. And so uh, he became very friendly with Krishnamurti. And there are many, many dialogues, about 25 years of dialogues between David Bohm and Krishnamurti because he felt Krishnamurti and, uh, had a, a, a lot, where he was speaking, had a lot in common with what he was trying to get at with his physics. And that Krishnamurti and this sort of spiritual dimension of, uh, and particularly the relationship between the observer and the observed was Krishnamurti's uh, territory. So that that was uh, that was fascinating to me, and so uh, again I, I could I I'm kind of guessing that the Higgs field is the same as a quantum field, and um, maybe that's completely wrong. And there's some physicists watching this saying, "No, no, 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 it's completely wrong. You don't understand it at all. Just because it's got field in it, it's not the same field. There's all kinds of different fields. But anyway." Uh, because I just saw this this documentary about David Bohm, and because it, there were so many resonances within that, not just because he was hooked up with a spiritual teacher like Krishnamurti, but also because it seemed really clear that the what we talk about as the the um, the unborn, the unconditioned, the uncreated, the unformed, matches almost exactly what uh, Bohm was talking about with his his implicate order. And then the, the born, the conditioned, the created, the formed as the explicate order. And we have this teaching from the Udana where the Buddha says, and we chant it here, it was Lumpur Sumedho's favorite teaching of that there is uh, the unborn, the unconditioned, the uncreated, the unformed. If there was not the unborn, the uncre- unconditioned, the uncreated, the unformed, liberation from the born, the created, the conditioned, the formed would not be possible. But because there is the unborn, the uncreated, the unconditioned, the uncreated, the unformed. Therefore, liberation from the born, the conditioned, the created, the formed is possible. So uh, it's kind of interesting, and, and, and looking at this, this documentary, it's about an hour and a quarter long, and the dialogues between him and Krishnamurti, they've got a few films of him talking with Krishnamurti, that one of the things that, that Bohm was trying to get at was how does this insight into the implicate order, how does that inform the way we live? And again, his affiliations with the Communist Party, how can you be free and a, and a member of a society? How can how can you have freedom and participation in a group? How does that work? And this kind of intuition that his insight into the physical world was somehow mirrored in the, in the human world. If we could learn how to both be part of a whole and yet an individual, then human society could be transformed. So uh, I would agree that the, these phys- insights of physics and what David Bohm was kind of trying to reach into, um, uh, they are related and they're, they're informed. And so I would say uh, uh, that where, what we have in Buddha Dhamma and what we've inherited from the Buddha is a, a really clearly spelled out way in which the implicate and the explicate, the conditioned and the unconditioned, are related to each other. And that um, the uh, that... That sense, or just as I was talking about earlier today, the the nature of Dhamma as being timeless, uh, uh, unlocated, like non-locality is a, is a term that's used in the the quantum physics world. That uh, the uh, it's part of the standard uh, quantum field theory descriptions, apparently. Uh, 
non-locality, non-personality, timelessness, these are all very, very familiar territory to us. So I feel that what we have in Buddha Dhamma, the, the, the kind of teachings and the practices that we've inherited, go a long way to showing how <laughs> we can be individuals and very much who we are, but yet function as a group, a sangha, a group, and participate both in a, in, in, in a, this community and in society as a whole. Uh, as a, a last thing I'll say, this is a completely, um, as an aside, uh, looking at the, I've never heard the term Higgs field before. I'd heard of quantum field theory and quantum, f uh, and, um, the, uh, the ultimate field and such things as that, or quantum foam. I'd never heard of a Higgs field. And it's very, it's an interesting part of Amarati, uh, community is that Jody Higgs, who used to come here on retreat and lived up in Scotland, and um, was a long-time supporter and friend and practitioner. She came on a 10-day retreat with me here shortly before she died. Um, she, her Higgs, Jody Higgs, is she was married to Mr. Higgs of the Higgs field, the Higgs boson. And where she uh, where she lived in Scotland, again, interestingly, in a field near where Jody Higgs lived, is the oldest tree in the British Isles, an ancient yew tree, um, maybe... Uh, I think, I'm not sure what it's, it's called, but Yajin Chandasuri knows the name. The, the Fourteen Gold U, as very close to where Jody Higgs, uh, lived. So when I saw Higgs Field, I thought, <laughs> no, just this kind of timeless, unlocated, um, sort of ultimate formless reality, but it made me think of this ancient gnarly yew tree and our dear friend Jody Higgs sort of up in the wilds of Scotland. And sort of relating that uh, the, the formless and unnameable to um, to the very human, and uh, uh, the um, and it just maybe a, a last thing to say was how Jodie was very close to dying when she was on on the retreat, and uh, when when we had the check in at the beginning of the retreat, and we were just sort of getting formed, um, I was very impressed by her. And she and she said, uh, "I'd like to make an announcement. I look really terrible." She did. She was kind of, her color was like sort of a mixture of yellow and purple. And she looked really ill. She said, I look really terrible, but, uh, I'm actually fine inside. So, you know, if you, if you see me and you think, Oh my goodness, she's really sick. Yes, I'm sick and I look awful, but I'm fine. <laughs> and I was really, really impressed that uh, her life was winding up. She'd come on a 10 day retreat. She knew she looked really shocking. I mean, she really did look pretty. Startlingly weird, uh, the effects of the, the treatment and her skin coloration and just, the, it was all the signals on a normal human level were like, whoa, you know, this person's really ill. But the way she spoke was like, I'm fine. And you could see it was coming from that, don't be put off by the appearance because uh, there's something more than that. And in terms of the theme for today, I think that's a, a good point to, to end on that, uh, uh, don't be fooled by the world of appearances, because uh, that's not the whole story. And that uh, if we uh, don't attach to that uh, that surface level, and we, we use the, the wonderful teachings we've inherited, then uh, it's possible for us to, to uh, wake up, to free the heart, and to wake up to that fundamental reality that is timeless, unlocated, selfless. Anyone? Well, this is the last of my batch, and so next week somebody else will be offering the the teachings. There'll be a different teacher for next Sunday afternoon. But uh, 
If all goes according to plan, I should be back with a few more talks later in the Rains Retreat.